Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. My name is Marcus Peter. I'm filling in for Al Cresta today. Al is away from the studio today. We've got a pretty interesting lineup. Today is the feast day of Pope John the 23rd. And many people know of him, but they, they don't quite know the man enough. And frankly, it's only in reading his documents and reading the letters that he wrote, even personal correspondence, that we get a true sense of the kind of man that he was. So we're going to be spending the, the first two segments of the first hour looking at Pope John XXIII and his life and his legacy as a conserver of tradition. Because this man is either greatly loved or greatly disliked by people on both sides of the argument. Conservatives would argue that he was too liberal. Liberals would argue he was too conservative. And all of his work in spearheading the Second Vatican Council is very often willfully shrouded in in this obtuse kind of uh, judgment as a modernizer, when in fact, this was a man who, in the spirit of St. Charles Borromeo, was truly trying to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit in revitalizing the faith of the church in the world. I want to draw your attention to one of his personal correspondences. This is from a letter that he wrote to his parents. Uh, It's dated 1901. This was written in Rome when he was in seminary in Rome. And he says this, he was born to a very poor family. He was born Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, and and he was born to a very poor family. They were sharecroppers. They were farmers who shared their crops with other farmers. And he writes this, We must never feel saddened by the very straitened circumstances in which we live. We must be patient, look above, and think of paradise. Paradise, paradise. We shall find our rest there. Do you understand? There we shall suffer no more. We shall receive the reward of our works and of our sufferings, if we have borne them with patience. I only wish children and parents wrote to each other this way today. And yet this is truly how he wrote. This was a personal correspondence, not meant to be published. This was just compiled in a biography of his. So I ask you to ponder those words, that everything we go through in this world will find its truest perspective when we meet each other in paradise. For now, let's take a look at the headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, October 11th, it's the Feast of St. John the 23rd. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The U.S. State Department confirms at least 22 Americans are dead as a result of Hamas's attacks in Israel. NBC News reporting between 100 and 150 people have been taken hostage. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. I think we all need to steel ourselves for the very distinct possibility that these numbers will will keep increasing uh, and that we may, in fact, find out that um, more Americans uh, are part of the hostage pool. Hamas has reportedly threatened to execute them if Israel hits Gaza civilians without warning. At his Wednesday audience today, Pope Francis called for an immediate release of all hostages. 
Prayers are being sought for the safe release of three Catholic nuns, a seminarian, and a driver reportedly abducted in Nigeria en route to a funeral. The abductors have reportedly reached out to the order to propose a ransom. House speakers are nominating Majority Leader Steve Scalise to be the next speaker. The Louisiana lawmaker thanked Republicans who supported him, and he wants the voting process to get underway quickly. Obviously, we still have work to do. We're going to have to go upstairs on the House floor and resolve this and then get the House opened again. We have a lot of work to do. Scalise secured the nomination 113 to 99, defeating Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. Scalise will now take his candidacy to the House floor, where he'll need to win the support of the majority of the chamber to take control of the gavel. And wholesale prices are up more than expected. The producer price index, which measures the cost producers pay, jumped half a percent last month. It's the smallest increase in three months, but a sign that inflation continues to be a persistent problem. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Hey there, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here on Cresta in the Afternoon. By the way, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Marcus Peter. I'm one of the hosts of the radio programs here on Ave Maria Radio, and I'm the director of marketing here. So continue to follow what we're doing on our website and social media. <coughs> As I mentioned in the opening earlier, Pope John XXIII will unfortunately, at least for the foreseeable future, have his legacy shrouded in this mist of ambiguity and, 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 and frankly misinformation. This was a man who, in following the promptings of the Holy Spirit, did something that was not unprecedented in calling an ecumenical council to bring about true spiritual reform. And yet, his works will forever be either appreciated or denigrated by lovers and haters alike. To talk with us today, on his feast day no less, is William Duino. William Duino is a William Duino Jr. He's a contributor to Inside the Vatican magazine, and amongst many other publications, he writes about religion, history, and politics, and he contributed an extensive bibliography of the works on Pius XII to the Pious War Responses to the Critics of Pius XII. William, how are you doing? Uh, Very well. Thank you so much, Marcus, for having me. Oh, no, the, the pleasure's all ours. So you've penned quite a bit on John XXIII's legacy, and I, I must say, from from one heart to another, I'm very appreciative that you've undertaken this task. It's it's not something that many people see the need to do. And in, in my opinion, much like yours, this is a man who's so underrated and underappreciated for the immense contribution he's left to the Church. Uh, I could not agree with you more, and you mentioned that I had also done a lot on Pope Pius XII. Mm-hmm. I can assure you that Pope Pius XII thought very, very highly of uh, the now St. John Twenty-Third, and in fact he made him the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice. Uh, but in, over and above that, uh, he knew that he was a man of tradition and a great, uh, as I called him, a conserver of tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, but he was also a, a deep, he had a deep sense of reaching out as a need in a, in a profoundly Christian, Catholic, Orthodox way, to reach out to the world, which was, which is, in, and still is, in such desperate need of the gospel. So, and as you, you know, as indicated, he has been, I think, misrepresented and romanticized as some sort of, sort of like roly-poly, um, <laughs> you know, intellectually not very keen pope. The reality is that he is a very, he was very, and remains a very sharp pope in his writings and mm-hmm. his legacy, and I believe he had a doctorate in, in sacred theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over and above that, he was a man deeply devoted to the pursuit of holiness. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that he was born 
to a very traditional family uh, in a small village, northern village, I think, uh, in Italy. And what he said once is that what, he, what, what really motivated his whole life was the example of, as he called them, my good parents, my papa and mama, because what he learned from them was, quote, fidelity, charity, mutual love, and above all, a holy fear of God. That last phrase is very important, Marcus, mm-hmm. because if there's one thing that we see in the world today is this complete neglect of reverence and, uh, as St. John the 23rd says, a fear of God. Yep. And that spirit of reverence was also coupled with an outstanding, not just work ethic, but an appreciation for the reality of work and providence and toiling and labor in a virtuous manner, which is, you know, all of these virtues are themselves rather absent in modern culture in the name of the pursuit of wealth that we have, the the amount of wealth that we have created. We've created a culture of so much affluence that has lent itself to generations of well, frankly, sloth, laziness. And in, in that situation, the contemplation of the divine often finds itself cast by the wayside. You're absolutely correct. Um, I wanted to mention one, uh, uh, you know, really uh, essential part of his life that uh, is known, but is actually not really followed through. It's sort of like when people refer to the Second Vatican Capital, they don't actually read it. The, people, yep. often, people often refer to his great journal of a soul, which is actually, uh, you know, an uh, a summary of his very long diary, uh, but it was this was published in the '60s, I believe, shortly after his death. Mm-hmm. And it's this—it's a series of profound spiritual meditations. And if you read them, they are—they are the meditations of what we now know, rightly so, is a saint. But I just want to read you one uh, one uh, representative um, entry in them to show you. As I say, people refer to them, uh, at implying that there's some sort of you know modern and you know very progressive mm-hmm, <laughs> journals when they're the exact opposite. But writing in, in 1910, uh, after there was a controversy of modernism, that was, that was the ideology that relativized Christianity and emptied it of its supernatural content. Here is what the future St. John XXIII wrote as a very young man uh, commenting on this. Quote, Jesus, my blessed Lord, has designed to give me an even clearer understanding of the necessity of keeping whole and intact my sense of faith and my being of one mind with the Church, For he has shown me, in a dazzling light, the wisdom, timeliness, and nobility of the measures taken by the Pope. He's talking about Pope St. Pius X, who took strong actions against the modernists. And he says, going on, continuing to quote his diary, uh, the measures taken by the Pope, St. Pius X, to safeguard the clergy, and particularly from the infection of modern errors, the so-called modernist errors, which in a crafty and tempting way are trying to undermine the foundations of Catholic doctrine. That's from the Journal of Soul in October 1910. So that is far from a progressive or liberal or uh, relativistic statement. Quite Amen. the contrary. This is the true, real heart of John the Twenty-Third, And he, he held to those very same views when he was Pope John the Twenty-Third. He was a reformer, but he was definitely a conservative, tradition-minded one who understood the, he, he understood that the faith was deeply rooted in timeless truths, and he, we needed to apply those timeless tr- truths in a faithful way to the modern world. Amen. In fact, uh, I, I want to throw out a kudos here to Bryant Shanley, Al's uh, prophetic executive producer, because he, he gave me a copy of Journal of a Soul before this program, and I read through it, and uh, I wound up quoting from Journal of a Soul towards the later part, the letter to his parents, at the opening of today's program. So, you know, I, I consider that a spiritually fortuitous moment. 
but now, I, I want to echo your sentiment exactly. So one of his encyclical letters, uh, Eterna Dei Sapientia, uh, on the eternal wisdom of God, paragraph 40. Now, he wrote this in 61, well into uh, his papacy, one year before the Second Vatican Council. And he says, these. this is in paragraph 40, he says these words, Mark this well, unless the faithful remain bound together by the same ties of virtue, worship, and sacrament, and all hold fast to the same belief, they cannot be perfectly united to the divine Redeemer. Now, he, he argues very... See, this is what perplexes me, that he's been caricaturized as this unintellectual individual who was not grounded in the intellectual tradition of the church, when the reality is a, a simple cursory reading of his writings proves far from it. Well, you're absolutely correct. In fact, I've written several columns on this theme. One of them, uh, you've already referred to it, but I, if, for people that want a more extensive analysis of it, I wrote an article, two articles. One of them is called... Pope John XXIII, Conserver of Tradition, and that was published in First Things. It's still available online some mm -hmm. years ago. And then the second one I wrote is entitled Pope John XXIII's Prophetic Encyclical. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one, if you look at that up under my name, my last name is spelled Duino, D-O-I-N-O, William Duino. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find, uh, really, uh, I think, a good, hopefully a good summary of the life and teachings of John XXIII, which, as you say, are so uh, you know, gravely misrepresented. But to cite one example of this, in my article on John XXIII's prophetic encyclical, it's not in the better-known encyclicals on social justice and peace, which are magnificent. Uh, it's his very first encyclical, which is in the English translation entitled To the Chair of Peter. And in this encyclical, he says, I just want to give you a few quotes because it gives you the, the kind of uh, his concerns. He says, All the evils which poison men and nations and trouble so many hearts have a single cause and a single source. Ignorance of the truth, and at times even more than ignorance, a contempt for truth and a reckless rejection of it. And a couple of other lines. He says, uh, God, gave us, uh, uh, God gave each of us an intellect capable of attaining natural truth, mm -hmm. but he stresses that ordinary people left to their own devices cannot do that easily. And that's why they need the guidance of the Church. And then finally, he says, um, he, he rebukes those who consciously and wantonly attack known truth, for those who do, do mislead the young and impressionable, an act that John denounced, he, he calls that an altogether despicable business. These are the mm -hmm. words of a saint, not me. Yep. Yep. So and anyway, I just wanted to emphasize how strongly he was in his words and his actions in accordance to the rules and to the teachings of the Church. Right. And uh, honestly, of, of all of his encyclicals that I have read, uh, Art Petri Cathedram is, is perhaps one of, one of the ones I have the greatest appreciation for. And you're completely right. So going one paragraph ahead or before what you just quoted, he yeah. speaks so clearly that, yes, sure, God gave us an intellect. That's paragraph seven, right? And then right. In, in paragraph six, he says this. Well, you know, the evils that poison men and nations and trouble so many hearts have a single cause and a single source, ignorance of truth. And at times, yeah. even more than ignorance, a contempt for truth and a reckless rejection of it. I mean, yes. talk about being prophetic. He's not alive now. He's not seeing this, and yet he called it. I, I think you're absolutely correct, and that's one of the reasons I wrote my article. I, I just can't get over how prophetic. You read him, and it's almost like he was with, he's living with us. He still is, of course, in the mm -hmm. sense, Amen. with Almighty God and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I, I just cannot get over how truly prophetic. And a lot of people think, that right, oh, yes, he was a prophet and so forth. Many people who are called prophets are actually false prophets. He was... He was an underrated, authentic prophet, mm -hmm. and if people only go back and actually read him, my advice to people when they hear the name St. John the 23rd, 
go back and actually read, not his interpreters, but his own writings and teachings, his own spiritual journal, his own uh, encyclicals, his own uh, teachings to the faithful, Mm -hmm. then you will see uh, why he has been declared a saint by the Church. But don't listen to the people that misrepresent him as either some kind of modern revolutionary or some sort of uh, reactionary, which he was far from both. And and perhaps that's one of the greatest sadnesses. It's that St. John the Twenty Third, as a figure has been co-opted by anywhere from the secular media to individuals with a particular axe to grind or a particular agenda to push forth. And he becomes, the, like I mentioned earlier, this caricaturized champion of their cause, when in reality what they're doing is a, a willful misrepresentation of who the man is without a real sense of what he stood for. Well, yeah, it's similar to what the liberation theologians, uh, the ones that, you know, there's a good sense of Christian uh, theology of liberation, Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. uh, the former Cardinal Rastigius slash Pope Benedict XVI said, but there's also a bad form, and the bad form uh, incorporates, quote, Marxist Christianity, which is a total contradiction. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to sort of, like, take a a very um, bad and illicit ideology and implant it. Uh, or synthesize it with Christianity. And it's like mixing oil and water. It just can't be done. And so John, John Twenty-Third understood that. Uh, we should understand that now. And in that sense, you know, we, we can't... You're right. It's distressing to see how often they just keep repeating the falsehoods about John Twenty-Third. And this continues with other popes as well, mm-hmm. whether it's Pius XII, uh, St. John Paul II, or uh, the current pope, Pope Francis. He's often... And granted, he speaks in different ways. And yep, my yep. advice on Pope Francis, read him all together. Don't just read bits and right. much less the headlines. So we're going to continue this conversation with William Duino on the other side of the break. We've been talking to William Duino Jr., contributor to Inside the Vatican Magazine, author of numerous books and works, including multiple articles on Pope St. John the Twenty-Third, whom we're talking about today on his feast day, and Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss What happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent? When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. How would you define the word beatitude? Webster's Dictionary defines beatitude as a state of utmost bliss and a declaration made in the Sermon on the Mount. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the beatitudes are, in effect, a portrait of the man who declared them, Jesus Christ, depicting his countenance and portraying his charity. The beatitudes also describe the attitudes and actions that should portray and depict his followers, true Christians, 
The Beatitudes are paradoxical in their promises. None seems more paradoxical than number eight, which proclaims, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The paradox is that God is present even amidst trials and tribulations. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmidt, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmidt's comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter here, filling in for Al Crest. I'm talking to William Duino Jr., contributor to Inside the Vatican Magazine, amongst numerous other publications, about the legacy of Pope St. John XXIII. Now, William, you you mentioned very briefly earlier about uh, communism in general, Marxist communism, and uh, how there's a particular strain of liberation theology that co-ops this version of communism and claims it to be uh, claims it to be baptizable into the Christian narrative. Funnily enough, of the many parties and factions that detract from John the Twenty Third, one of the prominent accusations is that this was a pope who was not only friendly to, but probably was supportive of a, a communist agenda. And you and I both know that's far from the truth. But I want to ask your opinion on this. Why do you think that that narrative you know, suddenly surged? Uh, because they think they can convince enough people that the opposite is true. You know, there's so many mythmakers in the world um, that um, we have to always be on our guard, and our, 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 on guard against them. But this is typical because... Uh, they do this with the current Pope as well. They take a, a kindly expression, a gesture, and they turn it into something that it radically is not. 
and um, a lot of sides are, are, are do this, but it's particularly true, unfortunately, with John the 23rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to mention one thing. If anyone uh, has any doubts about John the 23rd's approach to communism, which was clearly uh, one of condemnation, um, but also one, he knew that there were many people who were misled, who were, you could say, um, were, you know, experienced kind of invincible ignorance because they were grown up bad or they were indoctrinated by certain people. Uh, and he knew that. But you know who also knew that is uh, Venerable Archbishop Sheen. He wrote an mm-hmm. entire book on communism. And if you read that, he says, he, he actually, is, you would think reading certain passages that he's sympathetic. He's in no way sympathetic to the horrific nature of communism, which has right. slaughtered millions of innocent people. Right. But he is sympathetic, as we all should be, to individual human beings who are misled and are caught in error. And it's our job to bring them and pull them out. Mm-hmm. And that was St. John XXIII's whole approach. Um, so I, I want to mention one other thing that's very important when we're talking about, particularly on this day and the times we live in. St. John XXIII, just as he was a fierce enemy of communism, properly understood, he was also a fierce and active enemy of Nazism, the other hideous Mm -hmm. totalitarian danger of the 20th century. And as proof of that, when he was an apostolic representative, uh, the Pope Pius XII's representative uh, in Turkey and Greece, he actively moved in accordance with the Pope Pius XII's desires to rescue and save many, many Jews. And then when he became Pope, of course, he, just as, as his predecessors, much mine predecessors, both Pope Pius XI and Pope Pius XII, had begun the modern-day reconciliation uh, of Catholics and Jews. He extended it even further to his great credit. And so he is known as a great uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, supporter of interfaith relations. And as we see the terrible spectacles of the assaults against our dear Jewish brethren and so many other peoples of different faiths in all the regions of Israel suffering horrendously from horrendous ter- terrorist attacks, you know, it breaks your heart. So we can say a prayer for, for uh, you know, for, for uh, uh, an intercessory prayer to St. John XXIII for mm-hmm. the people of Israel and all the people, not just those, those who are in the Jewish community, but the Palestinian community, everyone of all different faiths. There's Catholics there as well. So we just want just peace to come back and an end to these hideous, evil ideologies, anti-Semitism, um, you know, hatreds, racism, and so forth, that is, and terrorism that, that's causing this. So I just wanted to mention that today because you see these heartbreaking scenes, and right. I, I'm thinking of St. John XXIII's beautiful spirit and embrace of people of all will, of all goodwill. Thank you. In, in fact, uh, I just want to build upon that. In Ad Petri Cathedram, he, he, from paragraphs 36 to 50 specifically, he talks very clearly about how God wills the disparity and variety of classes and that there's an obligation for everyone at differing levels of classes to work in harmony and and to bring about a kind of harmonious unity. People often don't understand that one of the main purposes of this document was to was a call for truth, unity, and peace in, in a spirit of true charity. Right, and and Pope uh, Benedict XVI, if you read his books again, he says he strikes much of the same spirit. Mm-hmm. He talks. He had many. He had very very deep intellectual conversations, not just with people of other faiths, certainly in the Jewish community, in the evangelical uh, uh, Christian community, but also he, he had dialogues going on with atheists. Uh, mm-hmm. So when people, you know, get a little concerned about St. John Twenty-Third or Pope Francis and so forth, what they're doing is that they're standing firm in Christian doctrine, but they're reaching out to people and trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's up to them whether they, uh, they want to embrace it, uh, but it's our obligation to try to present it in as charitable, but as un, uh, you know, principled a manner as possible. Right. I do think 
sometimes it's difficult to do this sometimes, and even popes can make certain prudential mistakes in the right, way they right. express things. But on the whole, their spirit, their heart is in the right place. This is a good initiative. And if you read the full context of everything they say, it is profoundly, deeply uh, orthodox, whether it's John the Twenty Third or Pope Francis or any other pope you want to quote. Right, and I mean to that end, just to take a step back from John the Twenty Third, we truly do have the assurance of papal infallibility as a charism, and we yeah. never have to worry about the fact that the pope is ever going to be a heretic in that regard, because papal infallibility as a charism falls uniquely upon the chair of Peter, and by virtue of union with the one who sits upon the chair of Peter, to all of his bishops. So therefore, we have this assurance: Christ truly is Lord over his church. Now, uh, could there be greater clarity in communication? Could there be lesser ambiguity in the way certain words are expressed? Absolutely. Like, like you mentioned, popes are human beings, and they, they, by their own fallen nature, can be susceptible to prudential judgment, uh, prudential judgment errors. Now, uh, I'd like to but that doesn't take away from the fact that this is truly Christ's church. So uh, I'd like to pivot a little bit. You mentioned how John the Twenty Third's driving force in bringing about the Second Vatican Council was in following the spirit of Saint Charles Borromeo, the great reformer. So paint a picture for us. Well, uh, of Saint Charles Borromeo, he was a great seventeenth-century bishop, the great cardinal archbishop of Milan in Italy, and he was a major force at the Council of Trent, which was an earlier. Uh, it's con- you know, I can, today it's considered you know this sort of. Uh, ultra-conserved reactionary council, in point of fact, far from being a purely defensive council, if you actually read it, um, it was actually quite conscientious, is calling for an end to corruption and abuses in the Church, calling for a renewed sense of holiness and a Catholic evangelization designed for the needs of those times. And so, and by the way, um, no less than Pope Francis himself has called the Council of Trent, uh, you know, a brilliant example of, of, of Catholic need for its times. And he has actually, he just appointed as Cardinal, one of the, this is very important, one of the great um, interpreters, and he's been described as a conservative interpreter, or, which in my mind means simply faithful, not in any political sense, but a faithful, mm-hmm. uh, Archbishop Marchetto, a, a Cardinal. He gave him a Cardinal's hat. The reason that's important is because Archbishop, the, many of the people who have this false interpretation of Vatican II do not have criticized or have tried to take issue with Archbishop Marchetto uh, because he has interpreted Vatican II in a very faithful manner. So they always reject him. And now they've been over, uh, overruled by Pope Francis because he's given Archbishop Marchetto a red hat. So I thought that was very significant. But anyway, to get back, uh, Cardinal Archbishop, uh, or rather, um, uh, Charles Borromeo, this great Cardinal Archbishop, he was a profound visionary and former, but at the same time, he was deeply orthodox. He was so orthodox that when the very progressive of their time, clergy uh, in his own time, found out about this, some of them actually tried to, you know, uh, assault him and attack him. So that, he, 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 you know, he, uh, he uh, provoked that kind of uh, uh, retaliation or anger, not because he was in any way unjust, but because he was trying to reform the Church. And he succeeded magnificently, both in his own diocese, as well as the entire regions, as well as being a powerful force at the Council of Trent. So, mm-hmm. And he was the man who inspired St. John XXIII to convoke the Second Vatican Council. So it wasn't the liberal spirit of the times. Right. It was a great traditional saint, a man who was a pivotal figure at the Council of Trent. So again, once again, we have the true facts are that St. John XXIII was being inspired his whole life, whether it was on Vatican II or his papal teachings or his outreach to people who were not with it in the faith, 
all rooted in the saints, in the life of holiness, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in the contemporary, you know, fashions of the world. You know, very few people know that John the Twenty Third approached, and I, I guess this is something a lot of people presume, and some people probably don't even think about. But he approached the convocation of the Second Vatican Council with tremendous prayer prior to it. Uh, he, he published Le Voci Che Da Tutti, you know, uh, the the voices from from everywhere, or the voices from all, and it's specifically about calling for the protection of Saint Joseph on the Second Vatican Council. Tell us a little about that, because the fact is, very few people understand this was an undertaking that was guided by the Holy Spirit, and in some sense, it was a true spiritual burden on him, but one he knew he had to see through. Well, exactly, and you know, it reminds me of Pope Francis speaking about the warning, and the temp- many times he speaks about the, the dangers and temptations of the devil, and even when he talks about discernment, not to be misled by false discernment. This is not quoted by people who quote him out of context, but to get back to St. John the Twenty Third, you're quite right. Uh, and leading up to the Council, he was a deeply, uh, he expressed, and both in his personal private prayer life and in public, he expressed the, the need and the concerns to truly listen to the, to, this, to the spirit and to the traditions of the Church and to hold firm. And that was the whole context in which the um, Vatican II was, was, was called. By the way, his predecessor, Pope Pius XII, who I know and done a great deal of work on, also had thoughts, and even Pius XI, I believe, had thoughts of calling a council, but after the war, there was just too much disorganization and chaos. He had to get, you know, uh, you know, you know stabilize the world before them. But many of, the th- many of the themes that would later come to be in the Second Round Council uh, were first inspired by his presence. Case in point, there is no other pope that is quoted more often in the Second Round Council than Pope Pius XII. The only other source that's quoted more often than him is sacred scripture itself. So again, uh, St. John XXIII himself said, uh, would say that uh, he owes, and also St. Paul VI, they say that the Second, Vatican, the Second Vatican Council owes a great deal to Pope Pius XII, who no mm-hmm. one has ever accused of being a progressive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And perhaps the nail in the accusation of the, pro- the coffin of the accusation of progressivism in, uh, on the part of John XXIII has to be with the fact that he wrote Vetrum Sapientia, published in 1962. Yes. On the promotion of the study of Latin, but it wasn't just about Latin. The whole thing is about the reclamation and holding fast to the Via Antiqua, the wisdom of the ancient world. Well, you're absolutely correct, and that's another thing. Everyone thinks, you know, they have this, like, historical amnesia. They actually think, and this is no criticism of anyone in regards to this, but they, a lot of people, if you ask them, they think that it was St. John the Twenty-Third who uh, introduced the new liturgy. Of course, it was uh, St. Paul VI. Mm-hmm. Just as a clarification, I accept completely both, and I understand right, right. The, the Novus Order, the New Mass, is the, is the standard mainstream one. At the same time, I have profound respect for people who love, as long as they're uh, in, you know... Infidelity and Magisterium, yep. Right. Uh, the Latin traditional Mass, I have many good friends at that. But in any event, um, <laughs> there's the, the, the myths are so far and extensive that they don't even know that St. John the 23rd loved and revered the Latin Mass or, and the Latin tradition and, and the Christians of the Church. So you're quite right. I'm glad you had this conversation today, and God bless the Church and God bless St. John the 23rd and all the holy saints, and, and let them pray for us and the people, the suffering people of the world. Amen. Especially, especially as the Synod and Citadelity goes on, we could use the intercession of St. John the 23rd to continue guiding the Church. We've been talking to William Duino, contributor to Inside the Vatican Magazine. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. We need your help. 
Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. The world's eyes are in Israel following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? Is that true? It's not true for most people in the church. Is Jesus my best friend? Is he your best friend? I'm looking around the church. There's a set of guys in here who have great man caves. As I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord said, Hey, when are you going to come to my man cave? (laughs) Like, you guys think a flat screen TV is really cool. You should see what I got to offer. Because I and I alone, he says, can really give you what it is you're longing for. Whoever it is we're rooting for right now, they're going to lose eventually. Or whatever it is that's occupying our time, one day we're going to realize it really wasn't that important. Why don't we hang out with the one who alone can show us what life is really all about? When was the last time you hung out in the Lord's man cave?
Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. We just had an enlightening conversation with William Duino about Pope John XXIII. We're going to pivot the conversation now to talking about an event that's happening this Saturday, but in the larger context of fighting for the right to life of the unborn. For more than 20 years now, the Guadalupe workers have been present in front of local abortion clinics, offering support and counsel for mothers who make the courageous decision to turn away. Edmund Miller joins us today to talk about their work in an upcoming gala, wherein Al will be speaking. And for those of you interested, you can still register for the event and tickets will be paid for at the door. Edmund Miller is one of two co-founders of Guadalupe Workers, the other being Alicia Wong. And if you'd like to find out more about them, visit guadalupeworkers.org. And the link will be in the description of today's episode as well on the website. Edmund, how are you doing? (laughs) I, I, that's a funny uh, question. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm exhausted, Marcus. I'm exhausted. Um, but thanks for asking. I, I'm still in Detroit. It's It's been quite uh, basically a day and a half at this point. But. Boy. Uh, so so what's, what's going on right now in, in Detroit? What have, what have you and your team been encountering in the past two days? Well, maybe it's a good day to have this call and have this conversation because um, I can give uh, very detailed particulars about the kind of thing that we do. So um, we started taking appointments um, last night, like around, I think, about 5 o'clock they, they started coming. And it was it was simply single mothers coming in just want looking for support but it was also in the midst of all that there were three ultrasounds done for mothers with more critical situations um in total last night um 11 to 12 mothers came in just in the span of a couple of hours um and it was so busy that i just i um I, we have this extra, the second floor, and on the second floor there's this little little room in the back, and so I just, with the permission of my dear wife, of course, I just flopped on the floor um, for the night, and then this morning um, I went over to the abortion clinic, which, as I've explained elsewhere, is kind of the heart of what we do, and. Mm-hmm. Um, at the abortion clinic, they came in three waves, so they came like around 8.20, the 8.30 appointment started coming in. So it was 8.30, and then there was another wave at 9, then another wave at 9.30. And so um, standing on the sidewalk, um, spoke to the, the three of us who were there, spoke to about in total maybe about 15 women coming in and there were what we call in sidewalk counselor lingo there were turnaways um there were women who were quite visibly moved and who were inside maybe 15 20 minutes tops and then then left um which is good. One of them was one of the, was from Ohio. Mm-hmm. She came out in tears and and she left. And 
So that was part one of the day. And then I, I got back to the office and um, a family that had been kicked out of their house the previous night, they showed up at our door. Um, so we spent several hours with them. I started just by cooking them breakfast and um, giving them some, some quiet and some rest time. And uh, it, it was it was a whole list of things to resolve, um, and not even to resolve, but just maybe to resolve for the day, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, my day just ended like about 15 minutes before the phone call. So that's what, what workers do. Wow. And, and that's day in, day, day out. It's not always this intense, but um, yes, this is. This is normally what we do. Not again, not to this kind of intensity, but um, the you know we're open to whatever God wants us to do for these mothers, and mm-hmm. we don't. There's there's no parameters. There are no specific guidelines for this mother do this this and that. Right, right. Whatever whatever they need, whatever she needs coming in the door is is what we try to do. Um, you know, like, uh, I mean, just give us an overview of, uh, because it, it's easy to confuse the work of sidewalk counselors as just turning mothers away from abortuaries. The fact is, you you and Alicia and everyone on your team work as hard as possible to make sure that you're providing as much of the resources that is needed for not just the well-being of the child, but the family in general, so that they can continue to you know live and thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... In the pro-life movement, um, we like to talk about babies saved, and that that's legitimate, and it's 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 certainly real. But um, the, you know, it's the baby, it's the mother, it's whatever man is involved, and there's no day, there's no time in which this work is done. Um, it, it's kind of similar to the whole Catholic approach to, you know, have, have you ever been, have you ever been saved? And, <laughs> um, so there's salvation on the physical level, salvation on the spiritual level. And as a Catholic, we would say, well, yes, but you know, the job goes on and that's our approach with these the the baby's life there is a point at which the baby's life is yes um is saved but the work goes on um cuz you know probably the mother in a year and a half two years is probably going to be pregnant again and the way that we respond to this child and this situation is going to help determine what happens with the next child and the next situation and it goes for us there are situations, um, you know, mothers in which this has gone on for years. And again, I explained that we're, no, we're not in the work of enabling mothers. Um, we, we very careful about that and we scrutinize every situation looking for, you know, what the stuff that we have to look for. We look for drug involvement. We look for abuse situations and, um, but 
you know, some mothers, it's just a hard, hard, hard road. And yeah, this, this is what we're supposed to do. And th- there's going to be eternal reward for, you know, this, this wondrous labor of uh, love in so many ways. Uh, tell us briefly about the event that's happening this Saturday, Al speaking at it. Uh, g- give us an overview. And for those of you listening, if you're still interested, you can still register for the event. It's taking place here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Al will be giving a talk. So, uh, Edmund, mm-hmm. tell us about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what Al has to say. I, I know that um, he, he's been a friend of ours. He's been a a great support to us. So there's going to be Al, and I I wanted to kind of leave this as a surprise for Al, but I'll just go ahead and <laughs> <laughs> I've I, um, I've got a classical guitarist coming in. Um, oh, he's going to enjoy that. For, yeah, because as some of us know, Al is a a pretty good guitarist himself. So got the classical guitarist coming in. Um, we have the, the 16 year old who, whom we met as a child in utero mm. 17 years ago. Um, she's going to come in and give her testimony. There'll be Al's talk. There's going to be, um, a performance of, um, a piece called Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Kert. It's um, for piano and cello. Um, and it's, it's Spiegel and Spiegel means, you know, mirror upon mirror. It's, mm. it's a work based on something called the infinity mirror. So I'm going to kind of tie that into the whole mystery of, of uterine life and the whole mystery of um, human life. So... That's that's our plan. Well, it sounds like an unforgettable event. And again, h- how can people get in touch with you if or get in touch with registering for the event at GuadalupeWorkers.org? Mm-hmm. It's, it's right there as they go onto the web webpage, GuadalupeWorkers.org. And um, it probably it's a matter of hours now before we, we close it out. Um, so th- this evening, definitely, if they... If they would like to come, um, registration should happen this evening. Okay. So uh, what else is on the horizon for Guadalupe workers? Uh, especially... Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, are, are there some plans in the near future? You know, I wish I were a CEO type and I could say, this is my five-year. <laughs> um, you know, it's step-by-step, Marcus. With, um, it always has been. Um, whatever, whatever comes along. Um, I, I think I'm, we're just going to keep doing what we do and, uh, again, see what, what God, God wills. And there's some, we, we talk and we talked and we talked about a, a wiser way to go about the whole housing problem, we still haven't come up with any solutions, but that's, that's what I'm looking at. Um, like this family that we had to, again today, they just had no place to go. So they sat in our office for several hours and we put them up in a hotel and, and now what? Um, how do we provide housing? How do we find it? And how do people that have no credit history 
um, how can you get, they get approved and get into a decent place? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and those are true difficulties. And for any of you listening, if you are the kind of people connected to the resources that organizations like Guadalupe Workers need, please feel free to get in touch with them. You know, we've got under a minute, Edmund. You mentioned that the women that you work with, most likely they're going to be pregnant in two to three years again, and the cycle is going to repeat itself in terms of the struggles. Uh, are we seeing an uptick in the culture, though? Are we seeing some kind of a reversal from the culture of death into the culture of life? Yeah, I wouldn't say that the cycle is going to repeat because it, that's, don't take it the wrong way, but it's kind of the the good thing that they're going to be pregnant again in a year mm-hmm. and a half and... Um, as opposed to what? Well, as opposed to, um, the IUD, the patch, mm. any abortifacient device and, or just aborting the baby early in pregnancy, because now the world is offering these apps on the phone that help a woman determine, uh, pregnancy very, very early on, making it much easier to you know, uh, avail oneself of the abortion pill and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So the evil is out there. Um, um, yes, there is, there is a change. There is an openness to life. It, it can, it can be done. It's a long, long road. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. And we'll keep praying and supporting your work from our part here on Avi Maria Radio. We're talking to Edmund Miller, co-founder of Guadalupe Workers. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Can your messy house lead to anxiety? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians states that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you walk in the door at home and you are greeted by clutter, peace may be hard to find. A messy house can lead to cognitive overload. While we're trying to concentrate on one thing, clutter can distract. According to research, women may be more affected by this type of anxiety. Societal roles and expectations can enhance the stress. To be fair, other underlying mental health disorders can lead to more clutter, depression, hoarding, and OCD, just to name a few. However, clutter can sometimes lead to more creativity. Bottom line, don't let a messy house define you as a good or bad person. Take baby steps to negotiate with those responsible for messes to make change or hire a cleaning person. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on clutter at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Ray Garendi. If I discipline consistently, I'd be disciplining constantly. If I were consistent in my discipline, that would mean I would discipline more and I'd be disciplining him often. The exact opposite is the case. More consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. Why? Because you're predictable. The child knows if he does A, you'll do B. That is why when you are predictable in your authority, you will actually have to use that authority less. Consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. The more you act when you need to act, the less you will have to act in the future with similar misbehavior. 
Hey, good afternoon. Closing off the first hour of Krista in the Afternoon, I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al. For those of you interested in participating in the gala dinner for Guadalupe workers, go on to avimariaradio.net. That's another option. And in the slider, you're going to see an ad for the event. And when you click that ad, it takes you straight to the registration page. So please do consider doing this. Support the this apostolate and the event in any way you can. And honestly, you're, you're also going to be spiritually nourished and enriched, intellectually as well, nourished and enriched by the event. So do consider attending. I'd like to draw attention once again to the writings of John the Twenty Third. This is again from his letter to his parents, which he wrote in 1901. And he says this, Think of what the good Jesus did and suffered for us. He endured great poverty. He worked from morning to night, was slandered, persecuted, and ill-treated in every way, and crucified by the very people whom he loved so much. This is the real lesson you and I should learn from his mission. And this is the only way to live happily even in this world, even in the midst of so many hardships. You and I must pray, pray always, and pray well, and go frequently to the sacraments, and have great love for Christ and Our Lady. In all of this, in continually reading the writings of John the Twenty-Third, you start getting to know the man who was hopelessly in love with Christ, His Blessed Mother, and Holy Mother Church. And this is the great legacy of John Twenty-Third. This is what he left us in kickstarting the Second Vatican Council. Stay tuned for the second hour of today's program. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon, second hour of today's program. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Director of Marketing here at Ave Maria Radio. I'm also the host of Unveiling the Covenants. It's a program on sacred scripture. Uh, Al's unavailable today. We will be talking about the prayer, the Our Father, with Dr. Thomas Richard in the first segment of uh, this hour. And then the second and third segment, we'll be talking with Father Dwight Longenecker, who is a stranger to practically no one who listens to this program. Uh, he, he was brought up in an evangelical Protestant home, became an Anglican cl- uh, clergyman, and then was accepted into the church. And now he's a, he's a practicing Catholic priest, prolific author, outstanding catechist. I want to draw up our attention a little bit into in to one of the works that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth put out. It's a three-volume series called Jesus of Nazareth, and in it, he talks about he spends a copious amount of time talking about the Our Father, and he says this: the Our Father begins with a great consolation. You and I are allowed to say Father, and this one word contains the whole history of redemption. We are allowed to say Father because the Son is our brother. And has revealed the Father to us. Because, thanks to what Christ has done, we have become once more children of God. And as I continue on in my work of evangelization, whenever I'm preaching particularly on the covenant bond we share with God, one of the things that we take for granted is the fact that we have the right and the gift, the privilege, the great immense privilege to call God our Father. 
This is a right that is granted to no one outside of the Christian tradition. We receive this right because Christ is truly Son of the Father in, a, in an infinitely greater way than you and I will ever be. But because God utilizes the mechanism of the covenant, he envelops us, he, he absorbs us into this family by means of covenant bond so that now you and I share in the privileges and rights of being true sons and daughters of the Father, co-heirs to that same kingdom of which Christ is King and Prince. And therefore, that's our heritage. This, this heavenly reality is our right, and God is truly our Father. Ponder on that while we take a look at the headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, October 11th, it's the Feast of St. John the 23rd. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to Israel as the country is at war with the militant group Hamas. Blinken telling reporters he'll meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials when he arrives. We're determined to make sure that Israel gets everything it needs to defend itself, to provide for the security of its people. Already, significant military assistance requested by Israel is on the way. That's on top of everything that we've been doing uh, for years. He added that he expects the number of Americans killed in the conflict to rise. At least 22 Americans have been killed since the conflict began Saturday. The Ortega dictatorship has arrested two more priests in Nicaragua. On Sunday, police arriving at the parish of Father Roman Reyes, claiming they were escorting him to a meeting. Instead, he was taken into custody and his whereabouts are unknown. The other priest was taken into custody on Saturday. Both their parishes are currently without priests and are unable to celebrate the Mass. At least six priests have been arrested in Nicaragua since the beginning of the month. A CVS pharmacy in Nevada that gave a pregnant woman an abortion drug when she had been prescribed a fertility treatment has been fined $10,000 and two of its pharmacists have been penalized. The tragedy occurred in 2019 to a mother undergoing in vitro fertilization treatments. She had just had two human embryos placed in her womb when the Las Vegas CVS dispensed the wrong prescription. When she realized that she had been given the wrong medication, she attempted to reverse the process, but it was too late. And the Powerball jackpot is an estimated $1.73 billion, the second largest jackpot in U.S. history. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. The Our Father is, is a prayer that all of us as Christians probably grow up with. And if you grew up in a traditionally Christian household, it's probably the first prayer that you memorized. But this beautiful prayer, while so simple, is so tremendously profound and therefore is often poorly prayed. We talk about why this is with Dr. Thomas Richard. Dr. Thomas Richard is the author of the Interior Liturgy of the Our Father. It's a beautiful book that meditates on the prayer from a liturgical perspective. He has served as Religious Formation Director for Parishes, Director of Lay Ministry, and Deacon formation at the diocesan level and retreat director. He's a former teacher, engineer, Protestant minister, and missionary. And he's earned graduate degrees in Catholic theology and ministry, Protestant ministry, and physics. He's the author of several books in Catholic spirituality, which are described on his website, www.renewthechurch.com. Dr. Richard, how are you doing? 
Hello, I'm very, I'm doing very well. Thank you. So, uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you first and foremost, what guided your thoughts to wanting to pen this article on homiletic and pastoral review? Now, I know this was published in 2015, but it's a very timely article since this Sunday's gospel is on the Our Father, and it's entitled "Overlooked and Underprayed: The Our Father." Well, that's that was my motivation for for the article. I really wanted to encourage people to pray the Our Father much more, well, much more slowly and much more seriously than is commonly done, um, because so many, uh, as you pointed out in, in your intro, so many just kind of uh, pray it by rote and, and are very familiar with it. But the content, the spiritual content in the Our Father is something that I, it was just, I just kind of stumbled upon it, or God stumbled me upon it, is <laughs> a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, And so I began to see the uh, the uh, the journey that is depicted in the prayer of the Our Father. And I began to see that, uh, first of all, when I, I began to hear correlations of the petitions of the Our Father with um, St. Teresa of Avila's um, Steps in the Interior uh, Mansions, uh, her book, The, the Interior Castle. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I saw that, then I began to really take seriously the sequence of the petitions and studying that I, I discovered Thomas Aquinas had a lot to say about that right about the sequence of petitions and and then one thing led to another and I finally I, I came up with a, an entire picture of an interior liturgy God working in the soul mm-hmm. as we pray if we pray rightly as we pray the our Father there is a liturgy taking place in the soul and God is the director of that liturgy amen amen and that's a that's a very true sacramental liturgical view of of what's going on in the heart of any prayer but particularly the our father and you frame yeah. your your engagement of this prayer by calling it first and foremost a priestly prayer and and there's a very specific reason why you said this so you know, explain to us why well of course a priest is an intercessor and the priest offers sacrifice to God and the Our Father, the the, the sequence of, of petitions in the Our Father, really do lead us to intercede for others. The very first thing we pray is our fa- our Father, and so right away it's a it's a prayer that the fatherhood of God will become a truth in my life, but also our Father. I'm praying on behalf of the Our, that is all the children of God. So right away, I begin to intercede for others, and myself is one of those, but intercede. And as the as the prayer progresses, and the prayer develops the whole notion of self-gift, right, right. Uh, then there there is the sacrifice at the altar, self-gift. Uh, we, we give ourselves in union with Christ at the altar right. uh, of Mass, and, and so on. And, and, and forgive us our trespasses, there's the sacrament of confession— uh, there again, a, a priestly work. We're praying to God that that He will forgive us as we forgive, and that as we forgive uh, calls us to our, our our priestly vocation to be merciful, to forgive others when they transgress against us. You know, the Compendium of the Catechism tells us that true worship of the one true God stops man from centering in on himself. And you rightly highlight that, that there's no room for self-obsession and self-centeredness in the praying of the Our Father. In fact, the more we meditate on it and pray it, 
prayerfully, thoughtfully, liturgically, the less self-centered we axiomatically become. <laughs> yes, that's well. That's well said, uh, and that that is uh, an illustration of the liturgical aspect of it, as you were saying. So uh, continue on then, you, you talk about it as a priestly work, but you also go on to say, you, you talk about the seven petitions, the, the petitional narrative of it. So bre- break it down for us from, uh, on a large perspective. Just talk about how is the prayer structured, because Jesus had a certain system in how he taught his disciples to pray. Yes, he did. And um, of course, the, the formation of the disciples that Jesus shows us had had three distinct stages uh, to them, and these three stages correspond to the traditional Catholic spirituality of three stages of the interior life Mm -hmm. that that we experience if we persevere in the interior life and growing in the interior life. Uh, The first stage, the purgative stage, uh, the second stage, the illuminative stage, it's called, and then the third stage, the unitive stage, or stage of the perfect. Um, And those three stages, Jesus actually used and demonstrated for us. Uh, First of all, the purgative stage in his his earthly ministry, his, his earthly formation of them, leading them from their first bat from their baptism uh, with him, uh, not 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 the uh, sacramental baptism that hadn't started yet, but but in their responding to his call, follow me, they actually initiated in themselves a a uh, an, an anointing in his word in his in his teaching, and so uh, a certain baptism there, but but in any rate, he for them was a man. They began to see in him a very uh, special man, a unique man who mm-hmm. worked, worked miracles, and uh, he and uh, they gradually began to get the sense that there was much more to him. Right, and he of course revealed more and more to him to mm-hmm. to them in himself. But anyway, that first stage was in the earthly Jesus, with the earthly Jesus. That was their formation. But then when he when he died on the cross. And they were just—they were devastated and and afraid and so on. They entered into what John of the Cross calls for our spiritual development, a dark night of the senses. Mm. And after that—that that initial horrible, at least pers- as personally experienced in them, that horrible separation from Jesus, dying on the cross like that, they hid in an upper room, but. But then, lo and behold, Jesus comes to them through locked doors and begins to form them in a miraculous, supernatural way. Uh, And so this supernatural formation of them through the resurrected, glorified Jesus and his glorified body uh, was radically different from the earthly Jesus that they had experienced. And so for us also, if we progress from the purgative stage, the stage of the beginner, um, in which we are mostly conscious of Jesus in a very human way, sometimes an excessively human way. And we may be encouraged to remember, okay, Jesus is God. He's not just a man, but but he is also God incarnate. But, but in our interior life, we experience that reality, that truth, much, much differently if we pro- if we progress in the 
interior life and actually enter into this illuminative stage mm. through a dark night of the senses, as John of the Cross describes it. Right, right. And in that illuminative stage, we experience Jesus differently, radically differently, and spiritually, we would say, in a supernatural way. He begins to, to reveal things to us differently, uh, radically differently. And if we per- proceed in that and grow in that illuminative stage and, act- and then enter into what John of the Cross would call then the, the night of the uh, spirit, mm-hmm. the dark night Not of the spirit. Soul. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the dark, he calls the night of the soul actually those two nights, first the night of the spirit, mm. excuse me, the night of the senses, and then the night of the spirit. And that night of the spirit is similar in some ways to the first dark night, but much more intense and much deeper, really, really burrowing into the marrow of our spiritual bones, so to speak. In, a, in his in God's purgation of us and cleansing of us, purification of us, and if we endure and persevere through that and enter into the unitive stage, there God's formation of us, Jesus's formation of us in that stage, is entirely supernatural, and 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 we're gathered into a union with God the Holy Trinity, um, which is which is really the beginning of the prayer, the Our Father. Right. And so the, the Our Father leads us from the last petition, uh, deliver us from evil, which we first begin when we first begin to follow Jesus or when we're first baptized. Deliver us from evil. That's the last petition of the prayer, but it's the first step of our life in Jesus Christ, our mm-hmm. baptism. So this, And the- then the, the very first petition of the prayer uh, hallowed be thy name is an expression of 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 the uh, formation the work of christ in us in its highest and purest and most most magnificent and mystical way mm-hmm. hallowed be thy name uh, the meaning in that in that uh, in that petition i would say and i think that that thomas aquinas would say this also maybe not in these words but to say, hallowed be thy name, as it ought to be said, and as we're called to say it, uh, is possible only when God has completed this interior liturgy in us mm-hmm. through the last petition, through the next to, to the last petition, all the way up through all the petitions to finally get to the first petition, hallowed be thy name. If we could ever, in fact, I would say the more we come to understand this prayer in each of the seven petitions, that first petition is the hardest to, to stop at. Mm-hmm. Because if we pray, hallowed be thy name, and begin to understand it, we, we could easily just lapse into uh, a contemplative state that we might never want to leave. It is, it is because it is truly an expression of union with God. Right. You know, your, your entire... Uh, treat, uh, the treatment of the Our Father truly possesses a very uh, Carmelite spirituality way of looking at it. But I love how you tied in uh, the, the Thomistic nuances of breaking down the petitions. Been talking to Dr. <coughs> Sorry, uh, Dr. Thomas Richard, who is the author of the Interior Liturgy of the Our Father. We're meditating on today's gospel, which is on the Our Father. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. What will eternal happiness, beatitude, be like? St. Augustine has a pleasant description. 
There we shall rest and see, we shall see and love, we shall love and praise, what will be at the end without end. For what other end do we have if not to reach the kingdom which has no end? The Catechism tells us, God put us in the world to know, to love, and to serve Him, and be with Him forever in heaven. The Beatitudes present us with clear moral choices. We are invited to avoid evil, to purify our hearts of evil, and to love God above all earthly things, none of which can bring lasting happiness. Lasting happiness can be found only in God, who is the source of every good and all love. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is, here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. (laughs) EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. 
Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Brought up in an evangelical Protestant home, Father Dwight Longenecker attended the fundamentalist Bob Jones University and continued his education by studying theology at Oxford University before being ordained as an Anglican minister, serving as a curate, a school chaplain in Cambridge, and a country parson on the Isle of Wight. He shares how this long journey eventually brought him to the church. Father Longenecker was, as I mentioned earlier, raised in an evangelical Protestant home, attended Bob Jones University, but he now serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of several books, including Beheading Hydra and Mystery of the Magi. His newest book is his autobiography, There and Back Again, a somewhat religious odyssey. Father Longenecker, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. It, it's an uh, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you, sir. Uh, I've been following your work can, for. Can you? Can, is it possible for you to give me a bit more volume? Uh, I believe so. Uh, I, 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 yeah, uh, we'll continue talking. That's I'm bit, sure that's a bit that's a that's a bit better. What's your, what was your question? Oh uh, no, I I just said it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you. I've been following your work for some time now. Hello. Do we still have him? Well, uh, while we're trying to get Father Dwight back on the line, I'd like to talk to you about his book, There and Back Again. And for those of you who are fans of J.R.R. Tolkien, and if you've heard me sub for Al on this program before, you, you'd know I'm, uh, I'm just a little bit of a Tolkien fan. And There and Back Again is the title of Bilbo Baggins' book. Uh, and and for, for him, it was The Journey of a Hobbit. In this case, it's a somewhat religious odyssey. And in this, Father Dwight Longenecker details his journey of having gone through evangelical Protestantism into his journey into the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And then from there, he found himself studying his way back into the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And by means of the pastoral decree, by means of the pastoral provision that was made available to Anglican clergy in 1980, Father Dwight Longenecker returned to the church, and more than that, now he's serving as a Catholic priest. Father, uh, are you back on? Yes, thank you. All right, so uh, I, I, I read through this book, and, and you're, you're a prolific author. I enjoy a lot of your theological works and your, and your observations. The, the, the style of this writing is, is significantly different from a lot of your other books. And you do start by saying that you started penning this, and you found it to be tremendously uh, overly pious and boring. And I must say, it reads nothing like that. <laughs> Good. I succeeded then. <laughs> So, uh, I have to ask you, why there and back again? And yes, I got the Tolkien reference. Yeah, um, well, my story is that I grew up as an as a evangelical Christian in Pennsylvania and went to Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. After that, I went to England for 25 years, served as an Anglican priest, and then came back to be ordained as a Catholic priest in Greenville. And that in itself is kind of a, one of God's great uh, jokes, I think. <laughs> then I went there and I came back again. And so I've tried to, I've seen the humorous side of God's working in my life and tried to weave some of that into, into the story. So, Father, I have to ask, I read this entire book with some concern about your health and, and the fact that you've been suffering with anglophilia for a while. Now, do you find yourself sufficiently cured, or is that something you still suffer from? No, sufficiently cured. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, you write about it that way, and I found that really humorous. Uh, so, uh, 
for those of us listening, many of the listeners here probably haven't read the book yet. So you gave us this very quick overview of your story, uh, but but that was in terms of geological uh, geographical journey. Tell us about the faith aspect of that journey. About the what did you say? About your journey into the Catholic faith. You know, like you started off as evangelical Protestant, and so tell us a little bit more about the faith aspect of that journey. Well, um, it really began when I was at Bob Jones. I did some yard work on a Saturday morning for an old woman in the town, and she was a very sincere, very kindly, um, very genuine Catholic. She was the first sort of authentic Catholic that I met, and she was uh, befriended me, and um, that sort of led me to explore the the Catholic expression of the Christian faith a bit more, and that first expression was through the Anglican Church. And I became an Anglican uh, while I was at Bob Jones, while I was a student, and that led into a call to the ministry mm-hmm. uh, within the Anglican Church in England. So off I went to England with this idea of being, being an Anglican priest, and that happened. Uh, but that journey was already on a trajectory towards the Catholic Church because of this, the witness and the kindness of this Catholic woman in South Carolina. And um, step by step, the Lord brought me to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So, Father, while you were studying in seminary, you made the horrendous faux pas of writing to a couple of bishops, quote-unquote, asking for a job, and you therefore embarrassed Englishmen. And as you you say, quote-unquote, that's an unforgivable sin. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Once I got to the uh, seminary in England, I realized that you needed to have a bishop who was going to sponsor you for ordination, put you forward for ordination. And I'm coming from an evangelical background where I certainly didn't know what a hardly knew what a bishop was. I certainly didn't know the um, sort of politeness and protocols that were required in England, um, and that you just don't write write to some a bishop out of the blue and say, "Hello, would you like to sponsor me for ordination?" Um, he didn't. None of them knew me, so it was kind of like a, a social error mm-hmm. and a political error. Uh, but the Lord opened the door, and eventually, I did meet a bishop who was willing to put me forward. Right, it was uh, Bishop Peter Ball, as you mentioned. So, yes. So, uh, in in your journey, in your studies, even while you were moving towards ordination within the the, the Church of England, it, it was very clear. You you make that very clear that you were always drawn to the truths that found that were found in the Catholic Church. Although you were cautioned to, and and quite rightfully so, you stayed away from a lot of the Catholics. So, why was that? What happened? Well. People need to understand that within the Anglican Church, which is a Protestant church, uh, it's very possible to do things in a very Catholic way, just as it is within Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible to, you know, wear vestments and have the Eucharist every Sunday, um, to have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, and so forth. And so uh, I was being drawn more and more to that Catholic tradition within the Anglican Church. And eventually um, I began to make my retreat at... Um, Catholic monasteries and mm-hmm. uh, go to Mar- various Marian shrines and began to pray the rosary while I was still in the Anglican Church. And then eventually, as the Church of England began to contemplate the ordination of women to the priesthood, this particular issue uh, forced me to look again at the authority question in the Church. You know, who makes such an important decision? Right, and it felt right. that I felt that it was not only above my pay grade, it was also above the Anglican Church's pay grade. Mm-hmm. And that brought me back to the authority question in the Catholic Church. 
Right, and that that authority question became like you like you mentioned, uh, perhaps the tipping point was uh, with regard to women ordination. You talk about that in your book, especially when you were at Cambridge, uh, you you encountered that as a as an object of contention. So tell us about that because I can only imagine for someone go. I I read about the whole situation. I know the history behind it, and I can appreciate it from a distance. But as someone going through it, there must have been a real emotional upheaval on your part. Uh, it was, uh, and I, I was by um, upbringing and by nature con- con- uh, uh, conservative, and therefore opposed to women's ordination. But I tried hard to listen to the other side and give them the benefit of the doubt. And they had some very good arguments for women's ordination. And this led me to the Protestant problem, which is what happens when two sides or two Christians disagree very sincerely about a very important issue, mm-hmm. and they both have good arguments. Um, who makes the call? The only the only thing you can do is say, well, I guess it really wasn't very important anyway, let's stay together, or yes, it is very important, we'll have to go our separate ways. Mm-hmm. And that led me back to, therefore, ask about the authority question of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, like I said, had a, they, it was above my pay grade, but it wasn't above the pay grade of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. because the Catholic Church has this authority, which is universal, both geographically and chron- chronologically. And what I mean by that is that the authority system is rooted in the last 2,000 years of Scripture and, the, and, and sacred tradition, right. but also uh, the authority question can uh, reach out to every corner of the globe. So <clears throat> while the Church of England was concerned about what's going on in England, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church could ask the question, well, how does this issue affect the Church in Africa, the Church in That's India, right. the Church in Asia, the Church in South America, the Church in North America? And had and had the global reach to be able to ask that question on a global uh, and on a chronological scale. Right, and and you actually specifically mentioned that in your book that the universality of the authority of the church was not only a drawing factor; it was a a profound reality for you. So, uh, I'd I'd like to then uh, zoom zoom into, or sorry, focus into that particular reality. Uh, you were drawn to the authority of the church, and, but as you mentioned. Back in the Church of England, while you, there were a lot of things that drew you that were Catholic but were practiced within the Church of England, everyone was mildly, as you mentioned, Calvinist. Now, I, I suspect when you write that, you don't actually mean that everyone espoused a hard double predestination, but uh, most of the solas of the Reformation or the Protestant Revolt were held to be true. And th- this must have jarred your own sense of faith because you had to find a new sense of grounding in your belief in authority and how Scripture was to be interpreted. Yeah, all I can say is that uh, I had. I think all of uh, Protestant evangelical Christianity is uh, at least it's built on a Calvinistic foundation. Even if they don't hold to the hard and fast um, tenets of Calvinism as such, there's a kind of Calvinistic under underlay under un, un, foundation of their theology. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is that when I began to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I began to say, "Well, this is what I've always believed." So, if you take, for example, um, the Calvinistic belief of once saved, always saved, uh, then you become a Catholic and you say, well, no, actually, it's, it's possible to commit a mortal sin and lose your salvation. Right. And I thought, well, I've always actually believed that. Even though I may not have stated it, I've always thought that that was common sense, that if you had the free will to accept the Lord, you could also have the free will to reject Him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was, that, it was that way time and again as I read the Catechism of the Catholic Church and began to really understand what Catholics truly believed rather than what I've been told they believe. 
Right, right. And uh, I mean, I must confess, a, a lot of what you're sharing is a- exactly the sentiment that <coughs> that I experienced on my way back into the Catholic Church, which was very simply that this discovery of this absolute authority of the Petrine seat and the magisterium. I, I remember reading Deus Caritas Est after having studied the biblical and historical basis for the papacy. I was in anti-Catholic Assemblies of God Pentecostal. And it, it was that same sentiment, this realization that this person wrote with the same authority that Peter wrote his epistles. Granted, Deus Caritas is not in the canon scripture, but in my early understanding, I saw the authority of those words in a way that my pastors never had. And, and, and it really brought me to th- that fundamental encounter. We're going to continue this conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. Please stay tuned. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Crestor and Crestor in the afternoon. And we're discussing Father Dwight Longenecker's newest book, There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. 
It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. St. Gregory of Nazianzus once said, He who does acts of mercy should do so with cheerfulness. The grace of a good deed is doubled when it's done with promptness and speed. The best way most of us can learn this approach to Christian service is in our family lives. That's why prompt, generous, consistent, and cheerful attention to each other's needs is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life. Every day, ask each other this life-changing question. What's one small thing each of us can do to make each other's lives a little easier or more pleasant? Then, remember to do those things as a way of letting God's love shine out through you in your family. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit catholiccounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. The world's eyes are in Israel following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. I'm talking to Father Dwight Longenecker. Raised in, evangelical, in an evangelical Protestant home, he attended Bob Jones University. He is now a pastor. He is the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And he is the author of this his latest book there and back again a somewhat religious odyssey so father i wanted to touch on so much in the first segment and i have to admit even in this segment we're not going to do this this book its fullest justice but i do want to say this you write in a delightfully sobering manner it's 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 joyful and yet it's profound i love the way you talk about adolescence and the effect that has on childhood and I particularly love how you highlighted the startling reality of the seventh seventh grade girls and what happens to them. Um, I, I, I began with my early childhood in Pennsylvania, and that meant talking about school days. Um, and junior high was not a were not a, was not a particularly happy time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I mentioned that um, when you move into adolescence, you move into seventh grade, and some gritty realities like braces. Uh, I forget the other wording, um, braces, uh, you know, body hair, seventh grade girls, and that dangerous stranger called sex. Right. Yeah, uh, so I have the quote in front of me. Adolescence is a time when the bliss of childhood makes a crash landing on the battleground of reality. For the first time, the breezy innocence and freedom of childhood came face to face with all kinds of gritty and grotesque truths, like seventh grade girls, rebellion, breaking voices, braces, body hair, and that dangerous stranger called sex. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, you, you've got you've got outstanding rhetoric, but the, the reason why I say this is you know joyfully sobering is because you're right. You're, you're putting to putting to words, I guess, essentially the human uh, the human experience of adolescence and the fact that you do cast away the carefree joys of childhood for the sake of embracing what would eventually become adult realities. And I don't know a single man on the planet who, going through seventh grade did not find himself terrified of gaggles of girls giggling and gossiping. What was the question there? <laughs> well, uh, I just wanted you to comment on that, but uh, I, I want to fast forward uh, into what you talked about in terms of uh, St. John Henry Newman, which whom I've come to see has a profound impact on your own life, right? So uh, you quote him by saying this, religion must have an infallible authority 
or it must fall into either the latitudinarian or the sectarian era. The latitudinarian sacrifices dogma for the sake of unity, and the sectarian sacrifices unity for the sake of dogma. And then you go on to talk about how the Anglican Church has all but embraced syncretism. It's completely latitudinarian. So, so tell us about that, and you've been watching the Anglican Church from a distance. You've seen it become more and more syncretistic. Yes, uh, that quote from Newman about the latitudinarian or the sectarian error is a bit of a mouthful, but what that means is a latitudinarian church is one that accepts everything, um, and basically as long as you stay on board, you can believe almost anything. Now, in the Anglican Church, that means um, stretching from the evangelical Calvinistic viewpoint right up to the Anglo-Catholic. But now, the, ch- the broad church has become so broad that they've embraced New Age theology, liberation theology, feminist theology, uh, the homosexualist agenda, the whole modernist thing. So if it becomes so broad that there's no definition at all, then it's just one big mush. Uh, at one point, I, de- I, I, I um, describe it as a smorgasbord in which vanilla right. pudding is the only, the only thing on the menu. That's right, that's right. You do describe it that way. And you're completely right. Uh, in the years since you've left the Anglican Church, uh, women ordination became widespread, but then it eventually became uh, a complete acceptance of the entire LGBTQ movement on, on a kind of general scope, uh, and, and more and more things being accepted in the name of inclusi- inclusivity. That's right. And I can remember when we were debating women's ordination in my Catholic, in my, sorry, in my parish, back in the um, late 1980s, early 1990s, I said to my people, mark my words, you're, you're discussing women's ordination now. I said, 20 years from now, you'll be debating um, same-sex marriage in church. And they mm-hmm. sort of said, no, 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 it's not the same issue at all. And I said, no, but they're connected, uh, right. because it's all connected with the same, the same uh, liberal modernistic agenda. In fact, you encountered exactly that even after you came back into the Catholic Church. A certain publishing house approached you, asking you to write up a proposal for a book on uh, the married priesthood. And I, I, I found your description of your proposal very healthy, very balanced. Uh, but instead, that's not what they were looking for. There was a certain agenda being pushed. Yeah, I was, I was as, as a married priest, um, this publishing house in New York, this, uh, these, I believe they were um, literary agents. Um, they just dis- they discovered I was a married priest. And they were like, "Wow, married priest! You know, we need this guy to write a book for us." And they wanted wanted a book that was basically going to be a uh, propaganda tract in favor of um, married priests. Uh, and I don't that, that's not actually my my point or my agenda. I don't I don't mm-hmm. campaign for married priests at all. Right. Um, and in fact, once I got in conversation with them, they said, "This is great, Father." They said because after married priests, they said, "Then we'll have women priests and gay priests." Right. And right. I was like. I can see where you're going with this, and of course, the book never got off the ground, which is a good thing. Right, right, and uh, and unfortunately, that that really is the the dominoes, the, the set of dominoes that uh, that people are waiting for the first one to fall, because what that pre- presents is a crack in the entire edifice, and then more and more agendas can be shoved through. And people should understand that the issue of married priests and the issue of women priests are not the same issue at all. Amen. Uh, married priests is a question of discipline in the Church. It's a discipline in the Church which the Church can um, dispense or make exceptions for, like they've done for people like me, but the issue of women priests, John Paul II has been clear, uh, has to do with the very institution and the very foundation uh, of the sacramental system in the Church. And so it's a doctrinal issue which the Church cannot change. Right. And 
continuing to talk about women's priests is completely, uh, from a Catholic point of view, is completely sort of blind, because Paul VI was the first pope to actually have commission a study on this back in the 1970s, mm-hmm. when, the Epis- when the Episcopalians ordained women. And then following Paul VI, John Paul II came out with his definitive statement. Benedict XVI, as Joseph Ratzinger um, defined that statement as mm-hmm. being of, of, of the to be held definitively by all Catholics, mm-hmm. and no longer to be discussed or analyzed. Pope Francis has reaffirmed that same decision. So now we've had four popes actually definitively teach that women cannot be ordained. So why are progressives in the Church continuing to push this? It's not a Catholic way to think to do at all. Right, completely. And going back to everything that you've said in your book on adherence to the authority that supersedes us, that while there are many things above our pay grade, it it's not above the pay grade of the authority of the magisterium of the church. The fact is, anyone who knocks on this door is knock, knocking on a closed door, a door that's closed and, frankly, is never going to be opened. Yes, that old saying, Rome has spoken, that settles it, is actually true. Mm-hmm. There are some things, and what does Chesterton say about having an open mind? He says you need to have an open mind so that eventually it can be closed on something. Right, right. In in other words, sometimes decisions are made and they're final, and that's it. Right, right, absolutely. And and because we have the adherence to the authority of the chair of Peter and the magisterium, we actually have a lot of assurance. Uh, Again, you know, just touching back on what I was sharing earlier, one of my great joys of becoming Catholic is I don't have to invent anything anymore. I don't have to be creative about doctrine, dogma, or or scriptural interpretation. Rome has spoken. We have. Go ahead, sir. I can encourage our listeners also that in these uh, troubled days with lots of. conflicting views and opinions coming up. One of the great liberties of becoming a Catholic is that you can say within or within the discussion, I don't really have an opinion about that, because you don't have an opinion. You have the teaching of the Church. Right. And it's, and it's not your opinion, or it's not my opinion. So you, you talked very briefly in your book about upon returning into the Church, and you saw uh, different levels of liturgical experimentation. You, you didn't go into uh, the great weeds of it, but uh, I, I do want to ask about your experience, because having come into the Church at a time when there, there has been some level of liturgical experimentation here in the West, uh, actually globally, uh, what has been your experience thus far? In the Catholic Church? Yeah, in the Catholic Church. Well, in, in the book I make it clear a couple places that after I became a Catholic, people said to me, now that you're a Catholic, do you like the Catholic Church? And I had to say no. <laughs> if I if I was joining a church I liked, I'd still be an Anglican. I joined the Catholic Church not because I liked it, but because I was convinced it was true. Right, right. And um, the liturgical experience within the American Catholic Church, as well as the English Catholic Church, has been pretty dreary. Mm. And I think one of the things that I talk about in the last chapter of the book is, I ask, just before the last chapter, as I became a pastor in America, I thought to myself, what would a Catholic parish in America look like that would combine the strengths of the evangelical religion that I was brought up in? That is a strong uh, biblical teaching, a strong emphasis on personal conversion and personal conversion of life. Combine that with the riches of the Anglican tradition, which are great. The musical tradition, the architectural tradition, the liturgical tradition, um, and then combine that with the truth and the and the authority of the Catholic Church, and that's what I've tried to do in my parish. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a winning recipe to tell you the truth. Of course, I would say that every priest thinks what he says is the right way. <laughs> but but um, we found that the, the congregation in the, in the in the parish and the school has doubled 
um, and um, it's a flourishing parish, lots of young families, so I mm-hmm. think it is a winning combination. Right, because the truth is attractive. Orthodoxy draws the soul. There's this ardent desire for an objective truth, and when that's taken, when that's presented naturally as an appetite of the intellect, that the soul is drawn to it, and just as much as when the good is present, the soul is drawn to it. Yes, and I've tried to say in all my writings that um, you know the Protestant, the Protestants have a lot going for them. They have they have some great strengths, and if we can learn from them in the right way, not just trying to adapt their outward. The, the, in an outward way, but adapt the very the, the, the heart of what they have, which is strong, the, the, the heart of their strength, then our Catholic faith will be stronger. Yeah, I completely agree, Father. I want to encourage everyone, we're, we're uh, down to the end of the segment, I want to encourage everyone to pick up there and back again a somewhat religious odyssey by Father Dwight Longenecker. It's brilliantly written, it's succinct in its own way, but it's theologically profound and, and lends us a lot of fruit for thought. Father, any last, uh, any last words before we uh, let you go? I just encourage people also to come to my blog, my website, DwightLongenecker.com. They can browse my other books. They can read my blog. It's the blog almost every day, um, and they can be in touch. So it's always good to hear from people. All right. Thank you, Father. It was a real joy speaking to you. God bless you. Okay. God bless. Thank you very much. So I've just been talking to Father Dwight Longenecker, and I want to encourage everyone to do do obtain a copy of There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. If I were to uh, piggyback off of some of the words of Father Dwight Longenecker in this book, he, he specifically says this, I became an Anglican because I wanted to, but I, I became a Catholic because I needed to. And that perhaps is one of the greatest sentiments that you and I ought to have, especially Right now, in this time of anywhere from ambiguous misinformation to a time of potential doctrinal confusion, what we have with certitude is that Jesus Christ truly is Lord over his church. And there's a definitive authority to the magisterium that, as Father Dwight puts it, is not just present, it's also chronological. No sitting pope at any given moment possesses the authority to upheave any doctrine that has been passed by the church before because the church receives all this from Jesus Christ to his apostles and this is called the deposit of faith and this deposit of faith has been handed down to us unfailingly and faithfully by every single one of the popes and the bishops in communion with the Pope of Rome. All this is to say that papal infallibility as a charism very simply safeguards this truth. The Holy Spirit continues the propagation of this truth. So when we talk about the development of doctrine, it's a very careful exercise of the magisterium in reteaching what Jesus has already taught and applying it to our life in a very specific way throughout the generations, throughout all the needs of the culture at the time, which is exactly what's happening in the church right now. I want to encourage you to stay tuned as we round off the second hour. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. 
No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge. And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, if you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive his mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta, rounding off the second hour of today's program. I want to encourage everyone to go on our website, once again, avimariaradio.net, and to sign up. You'll find in the slider the program for the Guadalupe Workers Gala Dinner that's happening this Saturday. Sign up for the, for the event. Click on the slider. It takes you directly to the registration page. Al will be delivering a talk that is sure to be not only riveting and profound, but also deep and insightful. So I, I want to reiterate again, we've been talking to a series of guests uh, today that that have been pretty enlightening. In particular, I want to draw attention to Dr. Thomas Richards' overlooked and underprayed the Our Father. Today, being the gospel that meditates on the Our Father, we have this great privilege of calling God our Father, and that is the basis of us being able to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing else gives us this privilege. So think about that, and God bless you. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.